Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson. And today, we are taking a trip over the pond for a pair of strange events uh, linked by one man. Alan Godfrey is a lifelong resident of Todd Morton, a town nestled in three Pennine Valleys on the Lancashire-Yorkshire border. Most residents call it Todd for short. The Pennine Hills, or Chain, is a set of hills that can be found in northern England. They extend southward from Northumberland into Derbyshire, and parts of them terminate inside of Scotland as well. In the 1970s, Rosendale, Todd Morden, Yorkshire, Lancashire, Derbyshire, and Staffordshire were embroiled in a UFO flap. West Wales became a hot spot in 1977 and 78, and Scotland played host to a number of fascinating cases as well. Godfrey bounced around jobs for a while, working as a butcher, a prison guard, uh, for the Metro, and as a cabinet maker, before he decided to become a police officer. He was assigned to the Halifax Division in Todd Morden. Gottfried had been a PC for roughly five years when he received a call about Zygmunt Adamski's body. Reading through his book, most of the time it seemed that they arrested people for drunk and disorderly type of crimes. Nothing quite like Zygmunt Adamski's case. June 11th, 1980 was a miserable day. It was downpouring, and PC Alan Godfrey had received a call that it a dead body had been discovered in the coal yard at Todd Morton Station. It had been found at 3.45 p.m. by the owner's son, Trevor Parker. Godfrey was on foot and received a ride from PC Malcolm Agley to the scene, arriving at around 4.10 p.m. This is where the weirdness comes in. The stack where Zygmunt Adamski's body was found was quite tall, about 15 feet high. Quote, I will never forget that sight that confronted me. A male in his fifties, and the look on his face in death was of fear and pain. The eyes were open and staring into the sky. His mouth slightly open so you could see his teeth. He had this terrifying expression. I can only describe it as whatever he'd last saw really terrified him. There was no footprints belonging to him, uh, disturbance on the coal. So... How did he get up there? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't work out. I could see that on the top of his head, there were individual burn marks. And at the back of the neck, there was a, a rather large weeping type of burn, and there'd been like an ointment smeared on it. Inspecting further down the body, I could see the arms were resting on top of it, not folded, but set lightly on the stomach area, just as you might place them if you were having a nap on your couch after a long day. Another thing that immediately stood out was that the body was wearing a jacket, but no shirt, just a white string vest. And odder still, there was no sign of coal dust on the front of the body or smeared onto his face. It simply looked as if the man had laid down on his back and died. 
though after climbing up a sodden coal heap without somehow shoring any evidence of that feat, end quote. Godfrey's theory was that someone hastily dressed Adomsky's following his death. They called in forensic teams shortly after inspecting the body. A man named Dr. Adshed was the first to examine the body, and his first thought was that the man had been scared to death, given the expression on his face. They were quick to label this as a suspicious death, possibly a murder, and as a result, nearly the entire police force arrived on scene. Their suspicions were murder, and that the body was dumped. Adomsky was found with no wallet, ID, or money on him, but there was also no evidence to suggest that anyone had placed him up there. There was no evidence at all that he had even climbed up there, given that there were no footprints. Uh, just seeing as how you're talking about coal, which would easily leave marks everywhere, there's no clear evidence. The postmortem examination of the body was conducted at 9.15 by Dr. Alan Edwards. He determined that Adomsky had died from heart failure due to ischemic heart disease and emphysema. Samples taken from the back of his neck and head came back unknown. The burns appeared to be caused by an acid of some kind and were sustained a few days into his disappearance. Time of death occurred 8 to 10 hours before examination so somewhere between 11.15 a.m. and 1.15 p.m. Trevor Parker claimed that he had been in the coal yard earlier that morning and that no one was on top of the heap. He entered this particular area of the coal yard around 3.45 p.m., and that was when he discovered the body on top of the heap. Since natural causes were ruled as the cause of death, it was Agley and Godfrey's job to figure out what happened to him and who he was. They posted photos of the man around town, but unfortunately found no leads. They followed this up with a search through the list of missing persons and came across the name, Zygmunt Jan Adamski. Adamski was a resident of Tingley, which was approximately 20 miles west of Yorkshire. There they met Zygmunt's wife, Lottie Adamski. Zygmunt, or Ziggy, as he was known to friends, family, and local residents, had gone missing on Friday, June 6, 1980. Ziggy had no reason to be in Todmorden. He had no friends or family there, and according to Lottie, he'd never actually been there. A family friend, Chris, filled the police in on Ziggy on their long drive back to Todmorden. When he saw the body, he noted that Ziggy normally had longer hair, so the police were correct in that someone very poorly cut it. The morning of his disappearance, he had gone into Leeds to go shopping with his cousin, Laska Tadosia, who had been visiting for the last couple of months from Poland, where Ziggy and Lottie were originally from. The couple had moved to England following World War II, having been prisoners of war. The two met in England and married in 1951. For the next 23 years, he actually worked in the coal mining industry. In 1980, he was trying to collect an early retirement so that he could take care of his wife full-time, who was confined to a wheelchair. His employer was still deliberating on this matter when he went missing. Sadly, a letter arrived during the week before his body was found. He, too, suffered from heart disease, 
which was strenuous to his health. The cousins returned to the house earlier that evening to enjoy a meal of fish and chips and chatted about the wedding of the Adamski's goddaughter, which was occurring the next day. And in fact, Ziggy was the best man in the wedding. After sharing their meal, Ziggy decided to head down to the market to pick up some potatoes. He left the house with 20 pounds in his pocket. The market was just 100 yards from the house, and the family never saw him again. The last person to see him alive was a friend who asked him if he was heading to the pub. He was in a cheerful mood, but replied that he wasn't. It was too early. Nothing was amiss. Nothing was wrong. The grocer confirmed that he did walk into the store and purchase some groceries. The only other person that was in the coal yard that afternoon was Peter Sutcliffe, the station sub-officer at the local fire department. He had stopped by the yard between 1 and 1.30 p.m. He was looking for Trevor, but when he was unable to find him, he left and found Trevor at the White Hartfold Inn, which Trevor later confirmed. The body wasn't discovered until 3.45 that afternoon, so we know that during that time period, it's believed that Adomsky had died. So, if his body was not in the coal yard by this time period, it means he died somewhere else and his body was placed on top of the pile. Placed by someone or something. So, Agley and Godfrey collect all of this evidence. They bring it to their superiors because it's really fucking weird. You'd think that they'd want to explore the fuck out of this, but wrong. They told them to drop the investigation entirely. There were a series of open verdicts and hearings about Zygmunt's case. Despite the evidence that suggested his body was dumped, there that he had suffered the burn a few days into his disappearance, and the other strange facts of the case, the police were doing their best to get this one off their hands. It wasn't long before the death of Zygmunt Adamski was connected to UFOs, First and foremost, the name Adamski, the enigmatic George Adamski, the contactee who is alleged to have met aliens in the Californian desert. Jenny Randall's also documented a UFO case in the area. A young couple heard a sound over their home at midnight on June 11, 1980, like great water surges moving to and fro, as they described it. They went outside to find the cause, but only noticed the sound fading away. Moments later, a circular pattern of red and green lights appeared over their roof and shot up into the sky, disappearing high above. Investigators believe that a helicopter checking on electrical lines was responsible for this particular sighting, and a few others. Regardless, this sighting, with its mundane explanation and its proximity to where Adomsky's body was found, linked the two together forever. And when a UFO group gets involved in a murder investigation, rumors are bound to fly. So, the thing about the Pennine region throughout the previous decade is that it had become a bit of a UFO hotspot. What makes the UFO mystery at Pennine so intriguing itself is that most of the activity centered around the winter months, whereas most UFO cases seem to occur in summer and early spring. In 1973, the British press started to document a phenomenon that came to be known as the Mystery Copters. 
The vast majority of sightings were definitely not of helicopters, and in fact, witnesses generally observed orange balls of light, though sometimes cigar-shaped crafts and other shapes were reported. These objects would float slowly across the sky in great sweeping arcs, and these lights were generally silent. There were a number of theories put forth. Of course, they blamed it on immigrants coming into the country because they blamed, they're blamed for plenty in the world. Some pinned it on the Irish Republican Army smuggling guns into the country. In the 1970s, Rosendale, Todd Morden, Yorkshire, Lancashire, Derbyshire, and Staffordshire, along with West Wales and Scotland, played host to a number of fascinating UFO cases. The press was quick to dub them mystery copters, largely because they believed there was an easy explanation for what was going on. But during this time, even the local police were fielding calls and were happy to see others, in this particular case, UFO researchers, stepping in to solve the problem. The police had experienced this phenomenon on several occasions and were a bit desperate for a solution. On the night of August 15, 1975, a light phenomenon was observed by two police officers from two different departments. Constable Alan Roberts sat atop the Ashworth Moor Reservoir on calm, overcast night. The stillness and silence was broken by the appearance of a bright white light bulb. At first, he assumed that this was an aircraft light, but given his familiarity with local aviation, it moved slower than a plane would. He lost sight of the object over Bury, where Constable Bob Smith, a member of the Greater Manchester Police Force, saw the triangular-shaped object in the sky above. At least, that's what he called it. Smith attempted to pursue the object in his car, but found it difficult to keep up with it. At one point, near Fairfield Hospital, he exited his car to get a better view of it, and in response, the object stopped briefly before departing again, as if to give him a better look. In 1977, West Wales was caught up in an intense UFO flap that brought with it sightings of disc-shaped craft, quote-unquote spacemen-like entities, and physical effects. We'll be covering this particular flap in another episode. One of the most dramatic encounters of the time period came from Bob Taylor, a 61-year-old forestry foreman with the Livingston Development Corporation in Livingston, Scotland. On Friday, November 9th, 1979, Bob set out for the Deschamont Woods, where he supervised four different crews. Along with him was his Irish setter, Laura, who often accompanied him through the woods. They set out toward Deer Hill to check on a set of gates. He walked down into a large clearing, where he was immediately confronted by a strange-looking object hovering just above the ground. It was a round object with a large flange around its center. Stems protruded upward from the flange, on top of which appeared to be small propellers. On the ball itself looked to be a series of small portholes. It was 7 meters or 22 feet in diameter and hovered 8 meters or 26 feet away. Bob stared at the object for 30 seconds, at which point it began to alter its appearance. The upper portion of it seemed to disappear, making it look transparent on top. The transparent portions seemed to change from right, left, and center at any given time. 
Suddenly, two spheres with spikes on them, resembling a marine mine, emerged and floated toward him. Quote, They moved in unison, on parallel courses, so that they approached one on either side of the witness. As they reached him, they fell onto his sides. He recalled a sudden smell that overpowered him, a bad taste that filled his mouth, and something tugging at his trousers and pulling him forward. Thereafter, a blank. We can only assume that the later evidence that he fell unconscious, head first on the ground. End quote. Bob woke up face first in the mud a short time later, his arms at his sides. It was as if he was just paralyzed and fell forward. He tried to climb to his feet, but found he was unable to walk. He tried talking to Laura, but couldn't get the words to come out either. He eventually crawled back onto the path he had just taken, slowly crawling to his pickup, but when he picked up the radio, failed to find the words. He tried to drive the truck, too, but in his disorientation, backed it into a ditch. Instead, he walked the 1.5 kilometers, or about a mile home. He was in a state of shock, asking for water, explaining that something had attacked him. Eventually, Bob's boss, Malcolm Drummond, learned of what had happened and called a local surgeon who came and checked out Bob. Quote, Bob had a large red mark about 4 centimeters in length and 1.5 centimeters wide underneath the round of his chin. This was comparable to a mild burn or scuff mark. A similar mark was also discovered on his left hip, which corresponds to the position in which he felt the tugging when the spheres attacked him. His trousers, a general-purpose police issue, were torn on both hips, the left side in accordance with the mark on the leg. His long johns were also torn in the same position on the left side. End quote. Drummond's crew went out to search the area and found a series of marks, indentations, and depressions. There were two long marks presumably made by the ends of his boots, suggesting that he had been dragged briefly. Also, according to Bob's testimony, the spikes on the spherical objects dragged across the ground. Sharp drag marks were noted between the area where Bob had seen the object and where he had been standing. Eventually, he was taken to the hospital, but nothing was found to be wrong, so he frustratedly checked himself out. An investigation conducted by local authorities found that there was no equipment that would have made the marks that were found. The only downfall in this case is that the public became aware of the area and just trampled it. There, were even, there was even a snowman that someone had built at the location. There were additional sightings in the area on or around the time of Bob's experience, including one by Violet Connor and her sister Lillian Black, who were driving to Armdale. Glancing up, they noticed a cigar-shaped object hovering in the sky. Later that day, Josephine Quigley and her friends observed a ring of lights at around 5.30 that evening. Sadly, there was also a report of a boy who was walking his dog when they came upon a landed craft. The dog broke from the leash and toward the object, and when it had departed, the dog was nowhere to be found. Bob was also not the only witness to have seen an object that blended in with its environment. 
1975 in North Wales, Trevor P. encountered a silent domed object that blended in with the background. Not only that, but a witness in Germany had seen strange round objects with spikes on it rolling around on the road. As for the Pennines themselves, UFO activity and humanoid sightings increased from, mid to late, from the mid to late 70s. In Staffordshire, a series of humanoid sightings were reported in 1976. They began on December 9th when two young women were driving through Wetley Rocks near Stoke at 7.45pm. A series of lights were hovering in front of them, low near the roadside. When they approached, they found that the lights were attached to a huge object with tiered lights the size of tennis balls. A few days later, a female art teacher in the village of Dunkirk had left a neighbor's house at 5.30pm when a large, bright, orange glowing object with a flat bottom and two tiers of bright lights appeared. At the exact same time, a woman in Kidsgrove Bank saw the same object in the sky. The most dramatic event occurred on New Year's Eve, when Nellie Richardson, a 65-year-old woman from Bagnall End, was awoken by a large bang. A brilliant yellow glow flooded into her bedroom. Her clock had stopped, so moving downstairs, she found the time to be 2.45 a.m., she watched this object for over an hour and had seen two silhouetted figures inside of it moving about. Long sightings like this are extremely rare. In August of 1975, a service engineer given the pseudonym Arthur Foster was driving home from a business trip in Wakefield. Driving through the moors, a mist had rolled in, making it difficult to spot anything ahead, and yet a bright white light shone through and appeared to be at the side of the road. He assumed at first that it was a lorry approaching in the opposite lane, but as he pulled closer, it looked, quote, as big as a farmhouse, end quote. He wisely stopped his car. After rolling down the window, he observed what he called a tunnel in the mist, created by something on the other side. Whatever it was, still several hundred feet away, but it still seemed to be drifting down the hill. Assuming that his own headlights were attracting this thing, he shut them off. He was able to discern an egg-shaped object drifting slowly along the roadside. The egg was about 20 feet wide and 12 feet tall, tapering on both ends. It pulled to within 20 feet of him before drifting down the hill to the left-hand side, and shortly behind, two smaller shapes emerged from the mist. A pair of white sheep, bleeding, followed behind it, looking up at the strange egg in front of them. The whole encounter lasted approximately seven minutes. He drove home slowly, terrified the entire way. Some suggested that he observed a deflated balloon traveling down the hill, but the theory failed to explain how it was creating its own light. In the last three years of the decade, sightings increased tremendously. On February 23, 1977, four members of the Royal Observers Corps witnessed a silver disc hovering over an ancient stone circle in Ilkley Moor. Investigator Paul Bennett went to the location and claimed to receive an electric shock from touching the rocks. I don't really know what that proves, but here we are. 
On March 9th, Brian Grimshaw and Jeff Farmer, a pair of textile workers employed in a factory in Nelson, were heading into work that night when a strange object would stop them in their tracks. Jeff was the first to notice it, pointing it out to Brian. The object descended quickly and then moved toward them at roughly five miles per hour. The car engine cut out and the lights dimmed significantly as it pulled closer to them. It was described as a huge black cigar with pointed ends. The body of the craft seemed to shine and there was an endless array of lights crisscrossing all over the place. There was a series of windows on the front of the object and it seemed to be surrounded by a ring of gray mist. On the rear end of the craft, they described seeing what looked like oil drums attached on either side. Their encounter lasted as long as 15 minutes, and during that time they exited the vehicle and stared up at the bottom of the craft. They each perceived a sound that Brian said resembled the tide coming in and out, and felt a strange pressure on them, like the force of a great wind pushing down on them. Whatever it was, it would eventually depart heading towards Manchester. Brian tried for several minutes to restart the vehicle, but only when it moved away did the lights return to their normal luminosity and the engine came back on. Both witnesses suffered from intense headaches after their experience, and Brian developed a, quote, weeping right eye the morning that followed. He stopped eating for a period of time, though assumed he had picked up a stomach bug somewhere. Jeff didn't want to talk to anybody about the incident following the encounter and refused to talk to investigators. One of the most dramatic encounters of the decade was experienced by an anonymous British Rail employee on February 12, 1979. He got off the train at around 6 p.m. that evening and walked the tracks to his home. Along the way, a green object hovered nearby. He continued on, not deterred by the sight. A train heading to Leeds passed the man, and when it did, this green object lifted into the air and moved directly over his head. He tried to reach up to touch the cheese-shaped object, but it was just out of reach. Moments later, he found himself floating in the air, lifted up by some unseen force. He was six or seven feet in the air and was moving approximately 15 feet where he was placed back down on the ground. The man quickly ran home once he was out of the grasp of the object. Turning around, he could discern a flat oval-shaped craft trailing some kind of mist behind it. Toward the end of the month, Mike Sachs, a tailor and owner of his own shop, would be witness to the landing of an orange light in the Rosendale Valley. He had been up on the night of February 24th, getting water for his son who had been suffering from tonsillitis. A big orange glow lit up the interior of his home. Outside, a giant orb of orange light was hovering over the quarry. He watched it before the light doused and the structure of the craft was visible. Three rings, twice the size of a double-decker bus, hovered there casting their own shades of light. Mike couldn't believe what he was seeing. He quickly abandoned his family and picked up his brother, and together they went out to find the craft. In the quarry, Mike walked near the darkened craft. 
He saw rows of windows. Strangely, he felt like he was not welcome to stare at the object directly. He could have touched it, but instead he kept his distance. He also received a message in his head. Two words were repeated. Porter cabin. Mike felt like he was being tricked. That it wasn't a UFO, but a portable cabin used on the job site. And with that, he left a short time later. Interestingly enough, there's a parallel to a case that we recently covered on the Patreon in which a tobacco farmer saw an object in a field, in his tobacco field, and the object uh, basically tried to convince him that it was not a UFO, but was in fact a tanker truck. The incident so affected Mike that he joined MUFORA, the Manchester UFO Research Association, after being interviewed by two members who happened to be police officers. One of them was Norman Collinson, a UFO witness who had, experience, who had an experience similar to Arthur Foster's. The group documented a phenomenon known as the Rosendale Anomaly, which was characterized by sightings of orange lights in the sky. While they were able to trace some sightings to planes that would shut off their engines for a period while descending, other sightings remained unexplained. Back to the present story. Godfrey was disturbed by Adamski's death, but he did his best to keep his head down and continue with his duties. And things would get considerably weirder, however. Many months later, on the evening of November 28th, 1980, Allen had been dispatched to a property where the caller claimed that cattle were free and roaming on their property. He received another call while approaching the estate, claiming that another person had reported cattle roaming around their property, too. It was a very wet and cold night as Godfrey patrolled the estates in the search of rogue cattle. All he found, though, were empty yards, and believing he had been duped, was about to return to the station when he received another call to come back. It was November 29th, 1 a.m. The woman that lived there reported strange sounds around her property. So Godfrey returned. She offered him a cup of tea when he arrived. Quote, Slowly, she revealed that she had been awakened by strange noises outside in her garden. Peering through the bedroom window, she had seen five or six cows moving about in the dark and so decided to call the police. When she went downstairs to use the phone, located on the front window ledge, she pulled open the curtain slightly to describe what the beasts were doing. But just as she was putting the receiver down after calling, there was a very strange event. She described it as an extremely bright glow, like a car headlight that had suddenly gone on to full beam. It lit up the window, and just a second later all went dark again. Looking back at her garden, the cows had vanished. End quote. Godfrey did another search of the property, but again failed to turn up evidence of the creatures. He reassured the woman that she must have seen a car coming over the rise and returned to his normal patrol. Hours went by, and after running into another colleague patrolling the streets on foot, he decided to return to the estate to find those damn cows. He neared a junction, intending to turn right, when his vision fell upon a potential bus accident. But it couldn't be a bus accident, because he had just passed the bus. So then, what was it? 
Godfrey abandoned his quest, choosing to investigate the object instead, which was blocking the main road. Quote, the large object was just hanging there, in the air, only about five feet off the road surface, and I was more than 20 yards away, so easily able to take in full details of its appearance. I could see it was definitely not a bus. Instead, I realized that it looked like something out of the recent Star Wars movie, a diamond-shaped object about 20 feet wide and 14 feet in height, with what appeared to be a row of dark paneling across the upper top third of it, although what it took to be paneling might also have been darkened windows. My headlights were shining off and illuminating the side. As I was staring at the object before me, there seemed a fluorescent glow coming from a large dome on top, and the whole thing was spinning slowly in an anti-clockwise direction. Its overall color resembled unpolished gunmetal. Godfrey sat in his cruiser, too stunned to move. The leaves had fallen off the nearby trees and were spiraling in front of the headlights of the car. Quote, there was a brilliant white flash of light out of nowhere that scared the hell out of me. It was so blinding that everything went black. A bit like having a photograph taken with a flash gun thrust in front of your face whilst you're in the dark cellar. Only here it was multiplied by a thousand times. End quote. Moments later, or what felt like moments later, he found himself driving on Burnley Road, 100 yards from where the object had been hovering above it. The object was nowhere to be found. He drove back to the spot to find any sign of it, this time accompanied by a new fear of what might come out of the bushes toward him. His eyes instinctually looked up, but found only low cloud cover. There was an electric twinge to the atmosphere, and a strange dry spot on the ground. A swirl of leaves, twigs, and branches lay scattered around a circular area of dry pavement, Alan quickly raced back to the station and retrieved PC Malcolm Agley, who had just gotten off shift. He too noted the strange dry spot in the road. It had been a rainy night, so surely the spot in the road shouldn't be, should have been wet. It was still warm when he placed his hand on it. Both Alan and Malcolm wanted to see if there were any other witnesses around the area and started hopping fences. And that was when he found the cows that had been reported out, safely locked behind a fence. When he arrived home, he tried to put it all out of his mind, thinking that it must have been a dream or something. He made himself some tea and sat down to take off his boots found a split in his left Doc Martin that went all the way to the sole, and an annoying itch that he treated with antiseptic cream. The next day, he went into work, to the ribbing of his fellow Bobbies. He was called into the inspector's office where he gave a detailed account of what he had seen. Three days earlier, there had been another sighting from three PCs, John Porter, a dog handler, Howard Turnpenny, and WPC, Julie Baxter. They were on a search for some stolen bikes on the moors above Halifax. While scouring the kennels at Cold Edge Dam, they became aware of a strange steel-blue-colored light that was pulsating. 
They all stood outside of their cars, observing it as it made a large sweeping arc in the sky and came in their direction, and then eventually moved off toward Todd Morton. Armed with this new confidence that he wasn't alone in seeing something, Alan Godfrey worked his shift and enjoyed the next couple of days off. He did make an appointment to have the itchy rash checked out on his foot, and the doctor said that it could be the result of sudden stress, but that it would normally affect a much bigger area of the body. When he returned to work, he found himself reassigned to Walsden, where he worked the beat via bicycle. His new inspector took extreme joy in making sure that he rode the damn thing. The two butted heads often. People started coming to Alan with their UFO sightings. One of them stood out. Exactly two years before his, a woman named Jenny had been seeing strange objects in the sky over Todd Morden for a couple of years by then. On this night, she was walking her dog when the dog stopped and looked up into the air. Hanging in the air was an oval-shaped craft with dark porthole-like windows on the bottom. It hovered in silence, surrounded by a green mist. She looked up and felt a connection with the object. She could feel an electricity in the air and a tingling in her skin, as if the craft was communicating with her. She described feeling joined at the soul. Quote, Moreover, this woman believed that this UFO had spoken to her, but without actually hearing a voice coming out of it. Instead, it was like something tickling my mind that used my thoughts and images to give me a message. She added, It was less a voice and more a knowing. I kept seeing or hearing the words, Do not be afraid. And I did not feel afraid. The object departed dramatically, splitting in two, one object headed toward Manchester, the other toward backup. In 1981, Allen received a call from Detective Inspector Norman Collinson, who worked in the fraud squad of the Greater Manchester Police. He wanted to interview him about his UFO experience, and reluctantly, he agreed. Along with Collinson were Harry Harris, a solicitor from South Manchester, Mike Sachs, who we mentioned earlier, the tailor and actual local musician, and Jerry Mitchell, an insurance broker who had been a bomber pilot during the Second World War. Each of them had had UFO sightings and were drawn to the Manchester UFO Research Organization, otherwise known as MIFORA. The group conducted an interview with Alan, and they found about 50 minutes of missing time between the initial flash of light and the moment he found himself mysteriously driving. Their suggestion? Hypnosis. It took a little time and some convincing, but Alan ultimately agreed. It was conducted by Professor Robert Blair, a psychologist who had formerly worked at Springfield Hospital and was now lecturing at Manchester University. He had no experience with UFOs whatsoever, making him the optimal choice. The only people in the room for that first session were Professor Blair and Alan Godfrey. He felt like hypnosis wasn't working, as he was coming out, but Blair later explained that it was a success. Alan's trip home was fraught with anxiety and unease. He had to pull over at a service station where he threw up violently in the bathroom. Upon making it home, he collapsed onto his bed and began to dream. 
quote, There was this strange noise all around me, reverberating like an echo that was swirling around in my head. Manum, 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 manum. It was all in weird tones, hard to describe in words. Then this image kept appearing in my mind, and it was nothing like I had ever seen. The figure was about three feet high, with a very large light bulb shaped head which looked far too big for the body underneath. There were also those eyes, large, black, and egg shaped. They were really so very odd. But even stranger was that there was no mouth or trace of a nose on the face. The being kept putting their face right up to mine and staring deep into my eyes and reaching out with what looked like withered arms sprouting long fingers trying to touch me. I just kept shouting really loud for it to get off me and lashing out with my fists, but it kept coming back again and again. Finally, I managed to get my foot into the flimsy body of this creature, and with a mighty kick it fell to the ground, and so did I, carried forward by the momentum of my lunge. I crashed to the floor with a bump. In the waking world, I had fallen out of bed. End quote. They arranged a second session with Dr. Joseph Jaffe. The session ended abruptly, as this time Alan was hooked up to a heart monitor, and his heart rate shot through the roof. Again, he vomited after the session, and his dreams resumed. He would undergo a third hypnosis session under Professor Blair, and this one would be taped. Again, he felt similarly after the session ended. Between all of these hypnosis sessions, the turmoil of the day-to-day -day job was still ever-present. Alan found his phone tapped after receiving a letter from a Russian investigator looking for information about his sighting. Alan had no clue what had come from his hypnosis session until the day he viewed the first recording alongside Harry Harris and his wife Susan. The three gathered at Harry's house and put the tape in the VCR and pressed play. His first feeling was of disbelief, quote, all in all, it was a very strange feeling. I could not get over hearing my voice coming back at me, thinking, oh dear, do I really sound like that? It was very much a proper northern drawl. But as the tape rolled on, I realized that I was only relating the story as I had remembered it before and already described to many people. There was nothing out of the ordinary, and I was wondering what all the fuss was about. End quote. Then he heard himself describe getting out of the car. But I didn't ever do that, I said to myself with a sharp intake of breath. Next moment, I was rushing back into the car, desperate to escape from the object. There was a bright light coming from it. I'm off, I was shouting on TV. Dr. Jaffe interrupted the session momentarily to place the heart monitor on Alan, his blood pressure clearly rising. Alan returned to his car and struggled to start it, light pouring from the bottom of the object hovering in front of him. The later tapes show the ECG machine going crazy as my stress levels rise and Dr. Jaffe fighting hard to bring my trauma back under control. But his questions went on, and I was coming out with amazing answers that suggested something incredible that I had been carried or floated inside the object and met a strange-looking man dressed in attire from biblical days. 
With him was a group of child-sized, large-headed creatures working alongside this bearded human. Alan described a slim man of about six feet in height, wearing a skull cap and a long white robe. He smiled. Alan went on to describe eight small, child-sized entities in the room that terrified him, so much so that he refused to describe them. They were touching him and experimenting on him, and putting them out of his head was a priority. He would go on to describe them as robot-like. During the questioning by Dr. Jaffe, I suddenly blurted out a name, Joseph, and was, of course, asked who this was. I explained that it was the man in the robe and, and that I knew him, but when asked how I knew that, I replied, it just came into my head. At one point, I was asked what was being said to me by Joseph, and I replied that he was not moving his mouth, but his words were appearing in my mind. I know that sounds crazy. I really thought it was crazy, but I can only describe it as a, as I guess, a sort of telepathy. Joseph wanted Alan to get on to a bed or examination table, but Alan was flatly resistant to the idea. There was also a large black dog in the room. Why? I have no clue. Perhaps it was Joseph's pet. At another point, I recall how Joseph touched my forehead, and things then suddenly all went black. And I heard a voice that I repeated at Dr. Jaffe's request, in a chilling, deep monotone statement. It was saying, Get on the bed. Get on to the bed. Whilst lying there, the little creatures attached some sort of bracelet onto my right wrist, and my left foot around and under the instep. Then they seemed to plug into the bracelets with some long, thin fingers, and I described watching a TV monitor above my head where graphs appeared on the screen, and I started to get severe pains inside my head. These were so bad that I became very distressed, and the doctor brought me out of the hypnosis, and it took some time before I came fully around. Here, it seems, was the origin of my severe headaches after recalling this part during each session. After the viewing, Alan blurted out that he's not called Joseph, he's called Yosef. The other thing that stood out was how during my time on board this UFO, something was connected by the child-sized robots to my left foot. Was this medical procedure the cause of that small reddish mark that had appeared on my instep immediately after my encounter, and which had led me to see a doctor? Alan would undergo one more hypnosis session, and after it he found himself being followed. He noticed when he pulled over twice to vomit that there was a car parked and a driver inside. Thinking nothing of it, when he returned to work, was grilled as to why he was continuing to explore this UFO stuff when he signed a form not to. Now, this form is allegedly, he allegedly signed when he joined with the police force. He had given interviews about his sighting um, to a couple of papers by this time, and it's how they ended up finding uh, him in the first place. Uh, it's how Mufora members found him. But this would ultimately become his downfall, essentially. Alan would remain a cop for two more years 
following his last hypnosis session. He often found himself the victim of bureaucracy that wanted him out at all costs. They tried to transfer him, but he fought. They tried to plant drugs and stolen property on him, but again, he fought. Whatever they threw at him, he fought. Ultimately, what took him out was an injury sustained in the line of duty. Nearly 43 years later, Allen still tells his story. It's unclear if the death of Zygmunt Adamski and his abduction are connected. At the very least, they are two very strange incidents connected by one man. And for some, that's enough. Though Allen remains unconvinced, stranger things have occurred. And if the Pennines are known for anything, it's the strange things that dwell in their skies. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. As always, you can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Purse and I make, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also have high-res images available on each of our Patreon pages. I was recently a guest on Caught on the Mic. Uh, it's a great podcast, and I got to talk about UFOs, what I think you know about UFOs and, and stuff. So if you want a really great conversation, go check that episode out. Um, I will put a link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, the podcast is called Caught on the Mic. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on a road in Todd Morton. In gray, we trust. Yeah.